In this interview with Harvard professor David Keith, we discuss solar geoengineering, whether or not scientists should intervene in the global climate to reduce the amount of solar energy reaching the Earth. Although many climate scientists and activists are vehemently against the idea of solar geoengineering, the climate models indicate that if implemented, the most climate vulnerable people could be less severely impacted. The dilemma then is that if it is removed as an option for tackling climate change, then perhaps those most vulnerable will be impacted more. To be clear, no one is advocating for geoengineering deployment, but only that research is conducted to see if there are realisable benefits opposed to dangerous outcomes. However, with the complexity of the climate system, should we be taking risks with the potential for unknown consequences? To put my personal position on the record, I share the view of former Archbishop Dr Rowan Williams, who when I interviewed him specifically about geoengineering in 2014, said the following. I'm certainly not an advocate of climate engineering, but I would like to know what it is that I'm saying no to if I do want to say no to it. And I'd want to know how we balance the short-term need to save lives and protect the vulnerable with the long-term anxieties we naturally have about governance and other effects that go with exploring more aggressive approaches to controlling our environment. Thank you for listening to Shaping the Future. I've now set up a Patreon page where you can follow these discussions more closely and support this work. Also, please do send me your feedback on any of these discussions as it really does help inform the schedule. In the next episode, I speak to Dr. Igor Semelatov, who has been studying the East Siberian Arctic Shelf for 20 plus years, about a new paper he and his colleagues have published identifying thousands of methane seep sites in the Russian Arctic that show the methane is coming from an old, deep thermogenic source and that the permafrost lid is thawing. Thus, the reservoir of hundreds of billions of tonnes of methane is rising and passing through the water column to the atmosphere. As yet, how much is passing through is unknown, but they will be publishing at least 10 papers this year on the subject. I will be sharing footage from the voyage, including methane seep sites and plumes. This is part one of a series of interviews on this subject. Although we're going to discuss your views on solar geoengineering, can you start by broadly putting into perspective how you see effective policy unfolding on emissions reduction, carbon dioxide removal, and then solar geoengineering? Well, so for emissions reduction, which is really the whole action on any you know, timescale that, that matters, um, I, think, I think the crucial thing is to begin implementing what we have seriously. You know, I work on things that are innovative. I, I've been involved in a startup company, but I think that, that while innovation is important, we have a lot of technologies to begin the process of really driving emissions towards zero. And I think the crucial thing is to begin deploying them in a way that's really serious. And I see this as fundamentally a country by country fight with some international coordination. And I'm really, you know, I've been involved in climate for 30 years. I've heard lots of promises and I've, uh, you know, lots of disappointments. And I think that that the last couple of years, I really think that the rise of the youth climate movement, what, for whatever reason, it seems that climate really has become more politically salient, which is thrilling. And I, I do credit the rise of the youth movement quite a bit, you know, Greta and all the other people like her. Um, and I'll say actually, so I'm Canadian, and there was an election here a year ago that was one of the first elections kind of in a Western democracy post the kind of uh, rise of the climate youth movement. And climate rose to be the, 
arguably the top issue on the Canadian agenda. By polling, it was number two. And to be clear, climate usually, even when a lot of people are talking about it, people like you and me, climate's normally number 10. So it rose to be number two, and uh, it was a complicated fight and divided government, but the, the, the parties that supported radical climate or strong climate action really won decisively. And my sense is the Conservative Party here, which has been kind of oil, uh, tied to oil interests, even now, it's not decisively fighting the kind of amazing carbon price. We have supposedly a carbon price that will go to $170 a ton by 2030, which is really world leading. And um, I, I mean, maybe just to keep talking about that, this is a bigger deal than you might think, because Canada, while Canada likes to think of itself as liberal and green, it's actually very hard for Canada to make deep reductions because we are much more dependent on oil and gas and on heavy industry than many other small um, Western democracies. So the, the pain is gonna be real. I'm speaking to you from Alberta, my long-term home, and there's no question that people will lose their jobs and livelihoods as the oil industry goes down. And so that's a real economic hardship, to be clear. I think oil industry has to go down, but, but I also feel for my neighbors. And, and I think that uh, <clears throat> that does give me some sense that maybe we are getting more serious in the climate fight. But, uh, but, the hard, but the hard part is yet to come, because I mean, right now the easy part in a way is installing solar and wind at the margin, and it's been fantastic. But really deep decarbonization requires some kind of big industrial policy, which is gonna to be tough. In the time that we have available, is emissions reduction enough? Does the carbon dioxide removal space, is it really viable? Is it going to deliver what we need it to deliver? What are your views on those two sort of things together? So one thing is just, you know, pick, pick on you a little bit in an academic way. I think you said enough or, you know, in time, and that, you know, presupposes there's some kind of objective answer about what's enough. And, and I think it's really important to say there isn't. Uh, um, you know, I think there's been a lot of framing politically, for good reasons, framing around the 1.5 report and the idea that we have a fixed carbon budget. But, you know, even the authors of that report had been careful to make clear that that wasn't a scientific conclusion. I mean, that report was asked, answering a policy question. You know, there's no question that the climate science tells us the more CO2 in the atmosphere, the worse we're off. No question about that at all. But, um, but it's not that there's a sharp threshold. And the idea of there's a fixed carbon budget is, you know, wonderful for negotiating policy, but it's just not true scientifically. And nobody who's a competent scientist says it is. So I think that that's important to just be clear about. I think carbon removal fundamentally is going to be important for reducing the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere once emissions are down towards zero. I think that for the first at least half or maybe two thirds of the job of cutting emissions, it's gonna be cheaper to cut emissions than to emit the carbon and recapture it. So carbon removal may be important for that last third or something, but that last third's a long way away. And you know, I think a big lesson about policy is you don't make decisions in plan before you have to. So I'm thrilled about developing technologies for carbon removal and about testing them with you know, commercial scale uh, development, so we start to drive down the costs. But I think the idea, which is now popular in the carbon removal sort of hype industry, that we must have X gigatons by X date, that's made up based on integrated assessment models tied to the 1.5 report, which again are not a basis for sound policy. Okay, and and on that principle, you do you think you kind of remove this? moral hazard of, well, if we're removing all the carbon dioxide, we can carry on. Well, no, I think the moral hazard is quite acute, actually. I think, I think that, in fact, partly carbon dioxide removal looks easier because people aren't thinking seriously about who pays and what the environmental consequences. So, so I think 
now that people begin to look seriously at what deep emissions cuts look like, people begin to see how hard it's going to be. And carbon removal is this thing that isn't quite there yet. I mean, it is real, to be clear. Technically, it's doable, but, but it's not happening at large scale. So it's easy to imagine that this technological thing that allows us to do something in the future uh, uh, um, helps. But no, I think the moral hazard is absolutely real because carbon dioxide removal is sort of a perfect moral hazard. It's basically saying, you know, if you've been promising your mom that you'll clean up your room every day for a year, it's like saying, okay, now I'm going to solve my promise to do it today by saying I'll really clean it up four times next week. And, you know, unless there's some underlying dynamic that makes that true, that's real, it's just moral hazard. And now if we talk about, say the geoengineering seems to get the most attention in the mainstream media with regards to approaches to sort of um, or responses to climate change. You're involved with the Scopex project, which itself is in the media. Can you give a broad yep. overview of how this form of geoengineering could be effective? So, so Scopex is just a tiny experiment related to one little piece of, of solar geoengineering, but, but solar geoengineering could be effective uh, uh, by, um, could be effective if you, if you put, say, reflective aerosols in the upper atmosphere, uh, and that would be done in a pretty, I think, if it, may, if it was ever done, it ought to be done in a way that's pretty even north to south and east to west. And it's clear that technically that it's doable. I think everybody broadly agrees about that. And the evidence from really all climate models and from other analogs is that if one did it in combination with emissions cuts, that the climate risks might be reduced in ways that they could not be reduced by emission cuts alone. So there's, there's evidence, I think quite strong evidence actually, that, that solar geoengineering could reduce uh, human suffering and environmental harm, say before 2050, in ways that that would be really not achievable by emissions cuts alone. I mean, for example, it would be possible to to keep global average temperatures under one degree C by 2050 in a way that I think is is well, it's clearly not achievable with emissions. I mean, to be clear, because even if you cut emissions to zero tomorrow, you can't do that. You'd need a time machine. What you're what you're saying is is that there should be a, a point in the timeline, whenever that happens to be, where you would deploy this technology, given the checks that it actually yeah, works, yeah, and you've yeah, done all the yeah, research, yeah, yeah, yeah. that you deploy this technology with an objective to bring the temperature down. Yeah. And that's, I, I just wanted to firstly um, contrast that with some of the other voices out there that say, oh, well, this is a kind of technology we have on the shelf that we use if, if everything else failed, you know, this kind of emergency technology. What's your yeah. view on that? Because that's a different... Um, I don't understand what that means. I've never understood a coherent view that what would it mean for everything else to fail? So emissions reductions can't fail. This is, I mean, it's, emissions reductions is a social choice. It's not like we're going to, like, like suddenly we find that all solar cells have a one-year lifetime and stop working. I mean, I guess that just seems so implausible. I don't know what it means. So, so I, I don't think so. So I don't know what it would mean for emission reduction to fail. That's a choice. It's like saying, what if my room failed? Well, but what if there was a, an unexpected spike in global temperatures, and then people said, okay, we need to do something about this urgently. Geoengineering has we've got this technology. Let's deploy well, it. So I think that's a poor. I'm very skeptical of. Okay, that that's a clear question. Uh, I agree that that's a good question. I, I don't think solar geoengineering makes much sense in that case, because if you truly don't expect or understand the spike, that means you don't trust your theory. 
And if you don't trust your theory, then you have no reason to trust that cellular geoengineering would work to reduce it. So, so my view is that, I mean, that, that's a little bit extreme, but basically I don't buy, and to be clear, I think most of the community has, agrees with me now. So early on, people talked a lot about this emergency framing, but hardly anybody in the cellular geo research world does anymore. Uh, and, and my view is that if it makes sense, to be clear, I think there's legitimate views that we should never deploy it, and we don't know enough, but I think if we deploy it, we should deploy it slowly, ramping it up slowly to reduce the, the average climate risks. And I think the idea of a kind of red button, if there's an emergency hit the button deployment is, is really mis, it, it may in practice be what people want to do because that's the way human nature is. But I think it's ill-advised because uh, when you deploy things really suddenly in a rush, you have less chance to monitor for Ill, Ill effects, for mistakes, for errors, and, and you have less confidence in the results. Okay. And I think this leads us quite nicely into to be able to explain the risks from your research and from how you perceive it. But before we do that, can you talk a little bit about the criticism that you've seen in the in the media from about Scopex that you might find um, pertinent in terms? Yeah, so, I agree with so, that, or incorrect, or unreasonable. So. Um, there's been quite a bit of criticism in the Swedish media, but I don't read Swedish and I feel like I don't understand exactly what the dynamic is. So I'm hearing secondhand from different parties about what's happening and I may be incorrect. But um, I believe there've been claims that, uh, that this is, that our experiment violates international law and that the only reason we're doing it in Sweden is because uh, we were not allowed to do it in the US. And those claims are like laughably false. Uh, um, it doesn't violate international law. People are referring to this uh, decision by the Convention for Biological Diversity, but that decision actually explicitly endorses research. <laughs> you check my Twitter feed and check the actual read, read the text of the CBD decision. And it also explicitly allows for small uh, purely scientific experiments. Uh, so, so that statement's really false. And, and it's just completely false that we uh, didn't do it in the US because of um, uh, anything regulatory. We didn't do it in the US because there's actually a very limited number of, of high-altitude balloon operators in the world. And SSC, the Swedish Space Corporation, turns out to be a fantastic high-altitude balloon operator. We've been really happy with them technically. They found actually some technical problems in our experiment we didn't know about. And um, um, for complicated reasons, Raven Aerostar, who we were working with, they had subcontracted the launch for the particular payload weight class that we had. This is purely technical stuff. And, and they're that launch provider had itself gone out of business. So there wasn't, a, a, we, our US provider simply couldn't operate the launch. So that's why we ended up uh, talking to the to Swedish Space Corps. Um, I think the, well, those are two criticisms. I'm happy to, if you want to raise some more, I'm happy to try and respond. Well, one I thought that was sort of probably the most obvious from, my, from what I would see is, is that they, it provides a slippery slope argument that once you start the research, you're, you're ultimately going to deploy. And what would you say to that? So one simple answer is that, that, that there's, there's empirical evidence that it's not true. So there are plenty of other places where people have done research on analogous technologies and the research has shown that technologies don't work very well. And so the research has ended and they haven't been deployed. So a good example of that is actually related to this, ocean iron fertilization. Um, at the very beginning, this was the idea that you could add tiny amounts of iron to the ocean and stimulate oceanic productivity and, and remove carbon from the atmosphere. The early claims were super impressive. Uh, there were a series of very careful modeling experiments done, ocean geochemical modeling, and some ex physical experiments. And 
the result of all those experiments is it's pretty clear that it, it sort of doesn't work. You can simulate local stimulate um, per, uh, plant growth locally, um, but, but you don't get large scale exports of carbon to the deep ocean uh, uh, at a scale that makes sense. And so interest in that has largely gone away. So there are lots of examples where people have an idea for a thing that appears to be potentially useful and we do research and we find it's not useful and so we don't do it. So the idea that there's a one-to-one -one link between anybody's early idea and research automatically leading to deployment is, is just false. There's tons of counterexamples. Okay, and based on that, because another sort of version of this is the precautionary principle, technology got us into the mess, so we shouldn't use technology to get out of it. I'm sort of paraphrasing another argument. Yeah, so I think, I think, I think that is just incoherent. The fact is that, 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 that like it or not, in a world with 7 billion people, not using technology is not an option. I mean, if you truly don't use, I mean, what does technology mean? Does technology mean an ox pulling you know, do, do agriculture? I mean, if you truly mean not technology, then the carrying capacity for the planet for people might be uh, well under a billion, might be only a few hundred million. So you've got to kill 90% of the people. That's just objectively true. So, so I think that claim makes, I mean, as you said it, I'm just teasing you, that yeah. claim is, is, I mean, either it's, a, it's an incitement to mass murder or it's incoherent. Um, uh, it, it, the fact is humans, I mean, the protein in our bodies depends on Haber-Bosch processed nitrogen. We now make industrial nitrogen in a larger quantities or basically the same quantities nature does. That might've been a policy mistake. Maybe we should have done something different, but to stop now, would literally condemn people to starvation. That is just a fact. Okay. And this is, again, you're, you're now getting into these sort of equity yeah. issues. And this is another- exactly. And another I noticed it's mostly rich people making this claim yeah. and they wouldn't suffer very much. And it's the poor people who would. So there's some deeply weird ethical issues here. I mean, a year and a month ago or so, year and two months ago, I was invited to Bangladesh to speak on solar geoengineering. And indeed, some people in the, the sort of left-wing environmental movement criticized them at the Commerce of the Parties for even inviting me. But their attitude is they have an equal right to control these technologies. And when you talk to people, we went absolutely to talk to some farmers in the Delta region of Bangladesh. These are people who literally, their farms will be underwater in, in uh, uh, maybe even at the end of my lifetime, certainly my kids' lifetime. And, and the probability of people dying from heat is, is very high. And uh, the idea that, that somehow uh, 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 we should not think about technologies where we have a lot of evidence that those technologies could help those people strikes me as kind of ethically dubious. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. Can we now talk about the real risks that you have seen in the, yeah. the, which, which concern you about the technology? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so Again, to be clear, these are risks about deploying the technology, which are very different yes, from yes. the early experiments. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, so there's a whole huge list of risks. Uh, um, there are a bunch of physical risks. So any individual way that one actually did what we call radiative forcing, reflected more light, would have risks. So for stratospheric aerosols, it could uh, deplete the ozone layer. It could uh, uh, may actually have ways that it would increase high altitude clouds as the aerosols, anything you put in the stratosphere is gonna eventually make it to the ground. So it might actually make more high altitude clouds, which would undo the effect completely. Um, 
when those aerosols get to the ground, you have to worry about ground level air pollution. There's all sorts of worry about unexpected climate effects, whether doing this actually makes the climate worse in, in some place. There's then a whole series of political worries. I mean, the central concern I think most people have, that I certainly have, is that these technologies will be exploited by political forces uh, that want to block emissions cuts. Basically, big oil companies or petroleum-rich states will exaggerate how well these technologies could work in an effort to block emissions cuts. I think that's a central risk. There's no question there's a whole bunch of risks. But it seems to me that, that our job, if we're trying to have ethical debate and public policy, is to be transparent about what we know about the benefits and risks. If um, we were in, in the point of deployment, or we were deploying, and it was turned off, it does this play, this is quite often you know, cited as a huge risk, that if it was turned off, you would see very quickly a spike in temperature. Yeah, yeah. Um, so let, me add, so let me go a little further actually on the oil company one first. I think it's important just to take the next step on the chessboard and think it through. So I don't think it's an if. I think there's no question that at least some people in oil companies or oil-rich states will say, hey, we've got solar geoengineering, we don't need to cut emissions so fast. I think that's likely to happen. But it's not like the rest of us will suddenly do what they say. But the reality is this is a political battle with many of us on the sort of environmental left on one side who are fighting for emissions cuts and we're fighting against parties that want to have slower or no emissions cuts on the other side. That battle's been going on for a long time. It's a hot battle. And then there's a middle ground who just doesn't care that much, rather just get on with their day, right? And, and the question is, solar geoengineering isn't going to change the fact that you or me, I'm guessing your politics and mine too, really want to see deep emission cuts. It won't change our views. And it won't change the views of some people who are climate deniers that we shouldn't have emissions cuts. The issue really politically, you ought to think a step further. How would it actually change the political debate with the kind of median voter, which is what would actually determine the outcome? And I think we don't know, but I, I think it's important to actually think this through. I mean, just saying some oil companies will exploit this, well, oil companies exploit all sorts of bullshit. That's their job. But it doesn't mean that, it, that we listen to them. Politically, you have to make an argument that this is really going to change what happens. And maybe it will, but you've got to be more sophisticated. And I'm not saying you personally, but people who are yeah. concerned, you can really think through what it means. Um, the termination risk is something that uh, I personally don't worry about that much. And I think, I think that's for, for political and technical reasons. So the way it's often stated is, if somebody just turns it off, well, why would somebody just turn it off? I think the answer is there's all sorts of technologies where if somebody just turns it off, we're done. Uh, that's true for electricity. It's true for nitrogen production. If somebody just turns off nitrogen production to go back where we were earlier in our, our thing, we're done. There's in fact a whole host of technologies that we completely depend on where if we just turn them off, there's mass starvation and death. Lots of them much worse than any effect of solar geoengineering. To be clear, if you do solar geoengineering the way I'm sort of suggesting might make sense of sort of a watt or two per square meter mid-century, turning that off would have effects that would be visible, but they would be much less bad than turning off lots of other technologies. We have. And, and there's no motivation I can see for turning it off. So you need to really think through a scenario that's coherent and makes sense. Okay. Well, in a kind of related, but not, not quite switching off, but what about yeah. weaponization where you, where you, the models tell you, you could impact someone's agriculture, for example, <laughs> is, are these real risks that you, you model and look at or, or do you consider? I've certainly considered a word about them. I think I was one of the first people to write about them, actually. So in an article I wrote in 1990, I wrote about weaponization, although there's actually earlier concerns. So there's no question. So I'm, I'm a pretty uh, <clears throat> skeptical about the military person, and I think I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely worried 
I think we've had a lucky break, which is there are technologies that in principle could work for geoengineering, which would be useful to the military. But so far, all those technologies seem to be too hard to do, and we don't actually know how to do them. And the technologies we actually know how to do, which is stratospheric aerosols, seem useless to the military. And let me explain why, because this is a technical reason. It's, it's not, this isn't because of goodwill on the point of militaries. It's, it's because of just a technical luck, if you like. So the technology we most know how to do, putting aerosols in the atmosphere, in the stratosphere, they last for two years or so, and they inherently spread all the way around east to west. And so in the end, technically, it turns out you only have two or three knobs to adjust. You can do equator versus pole a bit and northern hemisphere versus southern, and that's it. And what militaries want is they want relatively, they want weapons that cause relatively acute harm in an acute area. And it just doesn't do that. There's no way to make stratospheric aerosols just go over one area. There are theoretical technologies, like if you had a low earth orbiting mirrors that reflected away sunlight where you could reorient them in a minute, then you could have weather control and you could you know, blot out the sunlight over one area. And that really would be a military weapon. And there's movies about this, Geostorm, yeah. for example. But, but luckily those technologies seem, you know, they're, they're essentially science fiction at this point. They would cost trillions of dollars and nobody's developing them. Okay, so it's, it's not a precision tool. And this kind of plays into the unilateral country who says, okay, I, and you know, say the Middle East and Middle East countries said, I, I just want to cool out a little bit here. What, what would be the outcome of one country saying, I'm going to cool, we're going to do it because we can afford it. We've got a plan. So, so, so I think that, that's really worth thinking about. So the way I think about it, I don't assume everybody has goodwill. I assume that countries are in fact self-interested and, and, and selfish, but I think the question is to think through the really motive. So let's say one country says, we just want to cool ourselves, screw everybody else. There isn't a technology that we have today, as I was sort of saying, that just cools one area. Well, the technology we most have are, are, are global stratospheric aerosols that inherently are pretty even. Now, let's say that technology is in the northern, that country is in the northern hemisphere. Maybe you would argue that they would prefer to just do the northern hemisphere. But then that will make all sorts of other countries a lot worse off along the equator. And countries, you know, while countries may want to be unilateral, countries think about the impacts and they, 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 there's some game theory that people think about what the, their opponents will do. And I think the question is, since there's no big advantage to doing it just for your country, why would you do it as some hypothetical, jealous, you know, self-interested country in a way that harmed others when you could essentially just as easily do it in a way that was globally beneficial? Um, uh, because there's no reason to sort of create a fight you don't need to have. And, and so that's why I think there's reason to hope that, which I don't mean means you shouldn't worry. I think there's some reason to hope that this could actually be done in a way that was reasonably globally beneficial. Okay. And what are the, what are the research sort of hoops you have to jump through now in terms of if you were looking through a, a series of things that you really need the answers to, can you sort of give a broad outline of what, what they are? Sure, but, but I think I really want to take the, the, the me out of it. I mean, so, so I think right now a very realistic worry is that this is a, a inbred clique. It's been called the geo clique of a few researchers who think this is a good idea. And to be clear, to the extent that's true, nobody outside should trust us. You should only trust science uh, when there's really been many independent groups doing it from, you know, culturally and geographically different backgrounds who really are critiquing each other. That's the only way we, we end up trusting science. And, and um, 
So, so my view is that it would be ridiculous to make decisions about deploying geoengineering now. I think also ridiculous to ban it forever. Um, uh, my view is that we need a much broader research effort and an effort that, that has, I'm really talking about the, I'm not giving you the scientific answer, I'm happy to do that. But I think the process matters the most. The only reason that somebody should trust this in the end is if there's a, several different groups around the world that are trying to develop specific methods to do this in a way that's transparent and public and not for profit, where all data is open, and then many other groups trying to find out all the ways those groups are wrong. Only after you've done that for a while should you trust the results. And that's much the way we do vaccine trials, right? We don't just trust a vaccine trial because somebody says they got a great vaccine. We trust it because independent people look at the data and look for problems. So same issue. So I can tell you a lot about what we need to do. I think the central thing about trust is about process. Okay, well, let's get back a step to yeah. getting a major research project off the ground. Because unlike a yeah. vaccine, people see the need and they're like, yeah, sure, put the money into that. With this, it seems to be, um, from the mainstream media perspective, much more difficult to, to get. Do, am I getting am I wrong there? Is how well, much it's confidence? Very, it's very, I, think, I think in a sense you're right. But it, but, but, but it could tip easily. The mainstream media can tip. Uh, it, it has moved on this. There's been lots of, I mean, there's much more credibility for these technologies than there was five years ago. Uh, we've got, you know, multiple national academy reports. We've got IPCC. There's lots of ways in which the thing looks more credible than it did. And there's more interest in research. There are more research programs. I mean, there are now research programs in India, in China, in Brazil, in Norway, in there's a EU priority program, there's the US programs. They're all tiny, but they're there, they exist. And that wasn't true a decade ago. So it is true that the mainstream media is, is I think, and I think what's, what's my maybe slightly incendiary or pushing you critique is I think the, let me say the most incendiary thing. I, I, I think there's been well-intentioned bias. I think that many people in the climate science community are sensibly concerned about the slowness of climate action and sensibly worried about the self-interested, ugly power of oil companies blocking action. And many people who report on climate feel the same way. And there's been a bias to assume that, that, that solar geoengineering is, is something that's bad and, and, and that bias is because of concerns about this moral hazard. But, but I think the bias actually doesn't reflect to the extent that we know at all what people think. So there's a really interesting study that, that uh, there have been several studies that have tried to probe more what randomly selected scientists think or what randomly selected humans think about these technologies. And my broad view of those results are that people and randomly selected scientists are more supportive than you read in the media. We just did a study, and, and to be clear, you might think I'm biased, but this is with colleagues who have a long track record of expert judgment work, where we used a set of randomly selected US IPCC authors. So we just took a list of all authors and did random draw and same in China. And we asked them about solar geoengineering research. And I think all but one wanted a significant research program. And the average one research program as big as 5%, that was the median answer of, of atmospheric science research. So that is radically different from what you'd read in the media. And yet that was a random draw of IPCC authors. From a personal perspective of someone who talks a lot of to yeah. people about climate in the UK I always get the opposite sort of end I always see a much more anti and yeah. it leads me to yeah. think that how much confidence do you have that if people looked at the benefits versus the risks and the kind of what you see in terms of when you look at all of the research that's been done 
how much confidence do you think you have that they would then say, okay, this deserves a, um, a full-scale research program? I don't know. It's a really hard <laughs> question. I mean, I think this gets back to a bunch of other issues that are at the intersection of technology and the environment, where, where I think there are really different views, and, and I think I'm on the more, uh, I think I'm on the more environmental side, but obviously probably both sides do. So, so issues about um, organic farming and, and the use of technology in agriculture, uh, um, issues about some use of genetic technologies as substitutes for, for chemical um, insecticides. There are cases where some, especially European environmental groups, have opposed those technologies. I think their opposition was deeply misguided and has harmed the environment and harmed poor people in the developing world. Um, um, but I think they're very similar issues. So, you know, as, as you know, you, 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 there's this broad, and, and, and maybe it's worth saying, I come from a family of environmental scientists. My father helped to get DDT banned. I'm very acutely concerned about those issues, and I grew up doing research on those issues. But I think the idea that we shouldn't, that, that the right answer is hands off, is, is not, is in fact an anti-environmental answer at this point. Because my view is if you want to preserve the natural world, we need to reduce the human footprint, reducing it physically and reducing it chemically. And if you really did do what some, I think, European enviros suggest, which is to do everything in a more lower tech, primitive way, given the actual number of humans on the planet, you would have a bigger environmental impact, not small. I think that people, though their, their heart is there in terms of environmental protection, they're not um, honestly advocating the things that would most protect the natural world that we all hold so dear. I think more engagement between these groups, between you know, different opinions is yeah. what's really yeah. needed. I think we need much more dialogue. I'll tell you one little anecdote that might be fun. It's been really on, in my head because it just, we just had some conversations a week ago. I've been thinking of writing a piece. So one of my strongest critics, a colleague and friend called Ray Pierre Humbert, is keen on, on calling what I'm doing environmental hacking. And they say that we're hacking the planet. So I actually want to write an article that says that environmental hacking is a family business. And, and there's a funny trick of language because my parents were involved in getting DDT banned and then in reintroducing peregrine falcons, which is a kind of falcon that was uh, killed by DDT. And um, when falconers, when they reintroduce birds, do what's called hacking. That's the actual word. We were just talking with my father and stepmother about this because somebody's writing a history about this. So I helped to build a hack box in uh, when I was 13 in the 76 or something, uh, where, where this was, we were breeding falcons artificially, uh, that is uh, at, a, at an artificial breeding facility in, in Alberta. And then the falcons were being released in Eastern North America to reintroduce them to the wild. And, and to me, there's a quite an interesting analogy, which is that you needed both things. So if you just done, so the Peregrine Falcon Reintroduction Program was messing with nature. It was, a, it was like geoengineering, uh, but it was messing with nature to try and preserve nature not to make something different, to try and protect it. And just like geoengineering, you needed to both res, res, reduce the underlying problem and do the techno fix. So the underlying problem was DDT. If you just done the techno fix, if you just reintroduced the Falcons without banning DDT, it wouldn't have worked because the DDT was killing them. But if you just banned DDT and, and hadn't reintroduced the Falcons, it also might not have worked. That was the conversation we were having with this guy, person writing a history with my father and stepmother because the population was so far down, they might not have been able to, 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 to naturally rebound. So, so my view is that it is possible, and there are examples, 
there's a, a thoughtful writer who calls this anthropogenic, but not anthropocentric. So it's anthropogenic in the sense that it's technology coming from people, but the goal isn't just for people. We weren't reintroducing those falcons for some human benefit. We were them because we love falcons. We want the natural world to be more the way it is. And, and my view is that there's a certain real disconnect about solar geoengineering where people are so keen in their political battle against the oil companies, which I share, I've been in the middle of that battle, that they're losing track of the fact that there's an actual world out there in the high Arctic where I've traveled a lot, where we are going to lose it and where technologies like this could really help protect it. We could, with solar geoengineering, keep temperatures under 1.5 with confidence and we could prevent loss of the big ice sheets and keep the Arctic more the way it is. I think that's a pretty high value thing. And I think it's important that people not get lost in their sort of political battle of the word the oil companies will say X uh, and, and lose the idea that they should advocate for humans having less footprint on the natural world. Well, look, David, that's an excellent place to, to end the conversation. But thank you very much. It's been very insightful. And, uh, Thanks yeah, a I, do lot. Hope, I do hope it gets um, more, more discussion. I think that's the biggest thing. I think to end there, I think what we need, um, I think, and, and thank you for doing this. And I think the thing that we need is more, um, more transparent discussion. I think that this is genuinely a hard topic and thoughtful people, I think they're, to be clear, I think there are very well-considered reasons to oppose ever using these technologies. But I think that some of the reasons people use are in fact not honest. And what we need is, is a more honest, transparent dialogue about what the real risks and trade-offs are. And anything any of us can do to forward that dialogue would be helpful. Thanks again for listening. If you are interested to help support this series and help expand the discussion around climate topics, then please do consider backing my channel via Patreon. It will help me produce more content and you will also gain access to more expert interviews. It would be great to engage more with audiences too and understand your views on these topics.